this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello and welcome to New Books in Architecture. I'm Kimberly Zaracor from Iowa State University. This is the inaugural broadcast of the New Books in Architecture Network, and I'm very excited to be here to present to you Igor Marjanovich and Katerina Rudy Ray's book, Marina City, Bertrand Goldberg's Urban Vision. Today I had a chance to interview Igor about this wonderful book that talks about the round towers of Bertrand Goldberg's Marina City on the north bank of the Chicago River. These are buildings that are often photographed. They're always a curiosity for people, and they've also been featured in numerous magazines, postcards, album covers, and films, but until now they've received surprisingly little scholarly attention. In their new book, published by Princeton Architectural Press in 2010, Igor Marjanovic and Katerina Rudy Ray meticulously reconstruct the history of this building complex from all conceivable angles. They talk about Goldberg's career, the financing of the project, its formal and structural successes, and also Marina City's life and images after the project was complete, which is a really interesting part of this whole story. As you learn from the interview, most people don't know that these two towers that everyone recognizes on the river are just the most visible part of a block-sized complex that also includes a plaza, a shopping center, a theater, and even a marina on the river, which gives the complex its name. The project was conceived inside and out in every respect by Chicago-based architect Bertrand Goldberg, and it was interestingly financed by the Janitors Union in Chicago, which was looking to invest pension dollars in a real estate project. This part of the deal didn't work out quite as expected, but Goldberg, who trained at Harvard at the German Bauhaus, managed to construct one of the 20th century's greatest urban apartment buildings at Marina City. It's an address that still attracts design-minded residents who want to live in a compact residential apartment in the heart of Chicago, and you don't even have to give up your car or your boat if you want to live there. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi, Kimberly. Very excited to have you here today to talk about your new book, uh, Marina City, Bertrand Goldberg's Urban Vision, that you co-wrote with Katerina Rudy Ray. And I'd like to start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the project. Uh, Thank you. It's uh, great to be here and also to share um, uh, my perspective on the book uh, with you and and your audience. Um, uh, As you said, the book was co-authored by myself and uh, Catherine Arroyde Ray, and it focused on a single building project, uh, the Marina City Complex. Uh, in Chicago, um, it is a it is a product of a of a, of a long primary research um, uh, on the architect uh, Bertrand Goldberg himself uh, in the archives um, at the Art Institute uh, and then also in some of the other archives in Chicago and also abroad. Um, I guess what is uh, somewhat unusual about this project is that t- the two of us worked together on the book collaboratively throughout the project, uh, where we sort of blended our own interests. Um, I should say research interests and ideas uh, into a single uh, single book. Uh, currently, um, I'm a, a, an associate professor of architecture uh, at Washington University in St. Louis at the uh, uh, Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts, uh, where I teach courses in architectural history and theory, as well as courses in architectural design. Um, Katerina is a, a professor and director of the School of Art uh, at Bowling Green State University um, uh, in Bowling Green. Ohio. Uh, Now, our book did not start uh, neither in St. Louis uh, nor in Ohio. It actually started when we were both in Chicago. Um, And in one of our first conversations, what Catherine and I discovered was that when we both moved to Chicago independently in the 1990s, one of the first buildings that we wanted to see in Chicago was precisely Bertrand Goldberg's Marina City Complex. Um, We quickly realized that obviously the building had a particular allure uh, visual blur, I should say, in particular in Europe, um, because of its very unusual uh, form. 
um, that gave her gave it a very high prominence uh, around the world, and which is why we were drawn to it. Uh, sometimes to a disappointment to our Chicago friends who uh, wanted to show us examples of buildings by Frank Lloyd Wright and some of the other uh, other you know notable architects uh, in the city. Um, the reason why we really started to work on the book was when we started to sort of uncover uh, the background behind Marina City, we've discovered that uh, it's not only, um, um, we can call it a somewhat unusual uh, building form and a building project, but also uh, it had a rather amazing story, which, unlike its image, uh, was unknown, definitely uh, abroad, and to a certain degree it was unknown in the United States. Um, the building was commissioned by the Janitors Union of the City of Chicago and designed, uh, promoted, and built through a very tight collaboration between the client, uh, the Janitors Union, uh, uh, Bertrand Goldberg, the architect uh, and the realtor, and also um, some of the politicians in the city of Chicago in the late 1950s and, and early 1960s. So um, as we started to sort of research more that particular aspect of the story, uh, we were struck by the fact how much uh, about Marina City was uh, not necessarily about concrete and built form, but it was about uh, politics, uh, money, um, image-making, uh, in other words, a certain sort of economy uh, of buildings that oftentimes it's not necessarily covered in great details, uh, at least in the history of architecture book that, for, for example, we studied uh, as, as students of architecture, at least in Europe, where uh, many examples of Chicago buildings were reduced to their images and, and, and forms. So, so maybe, maybe I'll interrupt you here and, sure. and ask you to say something about the, your origins in Europe. You've mentioned a few times that you guys were newcomers to Chicago, and I know because we know each other where you're from and where Katarina is from, but maybe you could say a little bit about um, the background yourself and, and yeah. why, as a, an outsider, Marina City had this allure. You talked about the images of it that you had seen. Sure, um, and that's uh, one of the interesting stories about our book, that we have two uh, strangers to the city, so to speak, write uh, a book about a very iconic Chicago project. Um, I myself was born and raised in Serbia, uh, in Belgrade, uh, where I was educated and trained uh, and also practiced as an architect. Um, I also lived in Chicago and studied uh, in Chicago, studied architecture as well in Chicago and, and practiced. Um, Katerina uh, is also from a similar part uh, of, the, of Europe. She's from, originally from the Czech Republic, but she moved to London at a very, very young age uh, due to the events of 1968 uh, in Czech Republic, and, and she was formed as an architect and trained uh, in the United Kingdom, where she studied, uh, among other places, at the, at the Architectural Association in London at the Bartlett School, uh, before moving to Chicago to assume the directorship of the uh, School of Architecture at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, so both of us come with a, with a strong uh, European training and European background uh, to, to writing this project, uh, which, uh, again, will come, uh, interestingly, also again in our story about this particular book, because... Um, what is also not known that much is that Goldberg, even though he was seen as a quintessentially um, American or Midwestern architect, he was also trained as well in Europe and absorbed some of the ideas about modernism from uh, early European modernism of the 1930s. So that's a really great segue into my next question, which I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Bertrand Goldberg as a person and about his training and as an architect and where you guys see him in the history of American modernism, since um, I know that his reputation sort of has ebbs and flows, and sometimes he's, he's somebody who people are really interested in, and other times he seems to, to uh, be somebody who has a reputation of, of making forms that are not modernist enough, or somehow <laughs> they, they are, are counter to what real American modernism should be. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he was a very uh, interesting architect, in, in, in particular in, in that regard that you're mentioning, that uh, there is no consensus about how his work uh, should be classified, in part because also he was a very diverse architect. And as a practitioner, he's made uh, not only buildings, but uh, city plans. He's made uh, smaller structures. He's made pieces of furniture. He made cars. Uh, he was very interested in prefabrication. Uh, so in a sense, his, uh, uh, his architecture is only one aspect of what he did as an architect uh, since, the, uh, since the 1930s. Um, he was born and raised 
in Chicago, grew up in Chicago, uh, but at, uh, uh, in the 1930s he went to study architecture uh, to Harvard Graduate School of Design, which at that time was still a very much a bizarre uh, institution. Um, he very quickly gets disappointed by that kind of uh, environment because he was very interested in the uh, ideas about industrial um, progress, application of industry. Uh, at, at that point, many young architects or students of architecture heard about the developments in Europe, um, uh, in particular relative to the emergence of, of modern architecture. And he decides in 1932, uh, in the fall of 1932, to move to Berlin uh, to study at the Bauhaus. Uh, and he actually spent a year at the Bauhaus studying primarily on, under Mies van der Rohe, but also under Josef Albers, uh, Ludwig Hilbersheimer, and some of the other uh, important teachers at the Bauhaus. Um, it was a very important experience and a, and a very formative experience because uh, for several, I would say for several reasons. One is obviously formally he was exposed uh, to ideas about modern design, modern architecture, modern art, about ideas about pure form, abstraction uh, that are oftentimes associated uh, by, uh, with the Bauhaus. At the same time, his interest in making things in industry, in prototyping, in prefabrication was further fueled uh, by, the, by the desire of the Bauhaus to connect modern art and architecture to industrial production, um, which uh, was one of the major aspects of the school, and that's something that he was very interested uh, while he was there. But one particular thing that was marked by this experience in Berlin was that um, he befriended one of the um, uh, one of the administrators for, from the, one, of, one of the major German unions, who was a Russian emigre who participated himself in the Russian Revolution of 1918, and who lived in 1917. I'm sorry, who lived in in Berlin at that time, uh, named Vladimir Wojtinsky, uh, and they became friends, and um, uh, they started to sort of have these very regular sessions where Goldberg would oftentimes uh, help Mr. Wojtinsky with learning English uh, in exchange for getting some ideas. Uh, from Wojtynski about uh, labor movement in Germany, uh, the issues of union politics, which at that time played a major, major role in German politics just before uh, Hitler's rise to power. And this is where we have the first intersection with, with Goldberg and uh, and unions and labor unions, where he becomes interested in, in what they do and how they organize and um, how can maybe architecture uh, reach out to that. Um, he comes back uh, after Bauhaus was closed in 1933. 1933 to Chicago, uh, and works with several important firms in the city, including Keck and Keck, which was one of the uh, very one of the most significant firms, modern artificial firms in Chicago in the 1930s. Uh, and then very quickly he starts his own practice in the 30s, and and starts his practice by mostly working with making prototypes for industrially prefabricated uh, houses. Uh, sometimes for cars, sometimes for bathroom fixtures. He even sets up a you know a company that can actually help produce some of these things. So throughout the 1930s and 40s, he experiments with different aspects of uh, prefabrication and how they could be applied uh, to building building production. Um, he mostly designs single-family homes until late 1950s. And what is really interesting is that uh, Marina City, as big as it is as a complex, is uh, his first major uh, commission, his first major, we can say, in public building or multifamily building, which uh, comes relatively out of no, nowhere in 1959, uh, on the radar of the firm. Um, for most part of the 1960s, he was the office and Burton Goldberg himself were consumed by the design of the Marina City complex. Uh, and then after Marina City, 1970s and 80s, the office shifts more towards um, healthcare design, where he designed a number of hospitals uh, around the country. Uh, which continued pretty much until the office um, uh, closed or Goldberg died uh, in late uh, 1990s. Um, as an architect, he had a very uh, unique position in that, that he had a very strong connection to the origins of modern architecture, both internationally and in Chicago, obviously, being trained uh, by Miss Vanderer, who he even called a father figure in uh, in, in one of his, uh, uh, his interviews. Uh, but at the same time, the architecture that he made, which unlike uh, the typical glass box and steel frame of Miss Vanderer's buildings that we see in particular in Chicago, his architecture was different. He experimented with more organic forms. He was fascinated by what concrete can do as 
a material and what kind of shapes it can generate. Uh, he was very interested in experimenting both with building program and building form, uh, both in terms of housing, such as in the case of Marina City, or in terms of public space, again, like in the case of Marina City, which I'll come to in a second, but also in terms of hospital design and patient, physician, or, or patient-nurse relationships. And, and his architecture often resulted in very unusual uh, built forms, and he was often criticized for not following the Nician canon uh, too uh, too closely uh, by the Nician canon uh, in, in Chicago. Yet, unlike the next generation of architects, which uh, starting from the 1970s also departed from Nice's uh, canon, experimented more with historical examples and postmodern tendencies, he refused that as well. So in a very interesting way, he positioned himself between modernism and postmodernism and occupying a fairly unique position. And oftentimes in that regard, he's compared, compared to uh, architects such as uh, Harry Wies or Walter Netsch, who were also seen as, a very, uh, as very unique figures uh, in Chicago architecture and to a certain degree controversial uh, to some of their building designs. Why do you think he hasn't been the subject of more scholarship to this point? Um, that's uh, it's a really good question, which is actually one of the reasons uh, why we started to write the book, because uh, there was very little scholarship uh, on Goldberg, in particular in English, uh, when we started to write this book, which is about uh, now probably almost uh, 10 years ago. Um, and I think there are several reasons that I think one of it is that he was never uh, probably too closely associated by, by, uh, with, the, with the establishment of Chicago architecture, for example. Uh, he was never part of any major um, university there. He even won very few awards because some of the from the AIA of Chicago because some of the some of his buildings were rather uh, controversial. Uh, I also think that a certain period needed to pass to really uh, for his architecture to be evalu- evaluated a bigger uh, and maybe more international context, because what is interesting about Goldberg's work is that um, he's made uh, maybe uh, a more prominent impact internationally, uh, at least in the first instance, uh, than uh, than in Chicago. Uh, In one of the first manifests of, for example, the Metabolist Architects from Japan uh, from 1960, they actually feature a model of Marina City uh, as one of the examples of inspirations for the Japanese Metabolist movement. Um, so in that regard, his architecture was seen internationally as something rather uh, experiment- experimental and unusual that inspired architects around the world, which maybe explains how we, as far as Serbia or Czech Republic, uh, knew, this, knew about this project, a single building project that existed in Chicago and maybe not about some of the other projects that existed there. Um, So incidentally, the building was well featured in some of the journals abroad. He had a major exhibition, I should say a retrospective exhibition in Paris in 1984, which had a major monograph associated with it, but was um, again never published in the US and it was when we started to work on the book long, um, long out of print. So with a sort of renewed interest in not only the main narratives about Chicago architecture, about modern or postmodern, but also about the whole breadth of Chicago architects, which now includes Goldberg, but also Walter Netsch, uh, Harry Wies. Again, there is a recent book by uh, Bob Brugman on Harry Wies, but also architects like Keck and Keck, who practiced in the 1930s. I think um, this is all becomes a part of a bigger interest in rediscovering uh, Chicago architecture in, in its greater diversity, I should say, uh, which is where probably our book becomes part of a much bigger uh, bigger puzzle. So now let's actually talk about Mar- Marina City. So uh, sure. the book opens with this wonderful personal account, a kind of uh, view from the, the average person who might be coming up to Marina City on the street uh, to, to enter into the complex. So Maybe you can recreate that a little bit for the listeners and and tell us what Marina City actually is, because some people may not have had the pleasure of being to Chicago and seeing where it sits on the river and uh, how unusual uh, it is as a building, particularly in the downtown area in Chicago. 
Uh, sure. Uh, and uh, part of that narrative that we included also comes from uh, our experience of visiting the building, and in particular from uh, Katerina's experience of living in the building complex for uh, for a few years. And uh, the reason we open up the book with this uh, visual narrative about um, coming or approaching Marina City and then entering the complex is because uh, it's a very visually uh, striking experience of being in that complex and going up and on of its uh, higher uh, the Marina City Complex actually comprises uh, of two circular towers, again, a fairly unusual uh, form for, for residential towers, which sit uh, on a series of other public building, which are, buildings which are also a part of the complex. Uh, there is a mixed-use complex uh, at the base level of the building. There is a, a, a theater building next to it and an office building behind it. So it's a true complex that occupies uh, an entire city block. But what one sees really as one approaches the complex from Michigan Avenue, which is one of the major thoroughfares in the city, is the two uh, circular towers, which, uh, depending on the on the weather, they glow in the dark differently. Sometimes people have even light fixtures on the balconies. Um, they're fairly unusual because they're very expressive in their structure because of the balconies, because of the columns. Everything is pretty much expressed. Uh, and then as one walks towards the towards the complex, different aspects of this project slowly uh, uncover themselves to the viewer. Um, one of them is that one does not enter through the actual doorway on a tower, but actually uh, descends down through a system of escalator into a busy lobby, which is uh, filled with different types of mixed-use facilities, from convenience stores to uh, hairdressers, banks, and then the, the lobby space from which one actually uh, enters the building. Um, this entry sequence was a particular interest for, of particular interest to Goldberg, who uh, designed the, the theater building behind Marina City Towers as the main entry point, completely uh, covered uh, in glass, uh, in, uh, in um, glass without mullions, without any kind of partitions, to really emphasize uh, the idea of uh, transparency in his, case, in his case, but also this idea of particularly striking visual beauty where one enters into a glowing lobby completely transparent uh, that reflects the light of the city, the lights of the city but also the numerous artworks that were displayed in the lobby including uh, specially commissioned paintings by, by Victor Vazarelli. So this idea of visual elegance, visual impact was a particularly important aspect of the complex as one enters the building. And then uh, one approaches individual apartment unit in the tower by taking the elevator going to one of the higher floors of the towers. The apartments are placed between floors roughly between the 20th and the 60th floor of the tower. Uh, and then as one enters the, 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 the individual apartment unit, the entire uh, space of an apartment gently opens up towards a balcony, uh, a fairly large balcony, I might add, regardless of the size of the unit, which one can really use to uh, spend a significant amount of time uh, outside of the individual unit and also to spend time uh, looking back at the city from which we just entered uh, the apartment complex. Uh, in itself, that was a major innovation for its time to design uh, a fairly complex um, uh, urban um, housing unit or an apartment with a, such, a, such a large, generous balcony uh, with an overall idea to provide uh, a vision of city living that's uh, both glamorous but also um, visually spectacular in many ways, and most people who have ever visited the complex remember being on the balcony or being on the roof deck and really using the Marina City Complex as some kind of a camera or optical device from which one can gaze uh, at the city. Uh, this is not coincidental because uh, the building was uh, erected in, 19, in, in, in early 1960s, uh, at a time when we don't have uh, much construction of that kind in uh, American downtowns. And if we have any types of housing being constructed, oftentimes uh, they are associated with different forms of public housing, which uh, did not have that kind of image and that kind of alert. They didn't have, they didn't have this kind of elegance associated with them. So with Marina City, Goldberg was trying to create a different vision uh, for urban living that would be much more uh, interesting, much more visually striking, much more beautiful uh, in its all entirety. But what is interesting about this whole story about 
again, experiencing the building in its beautiful aspects, is that um, uh, it was also socially very conscious um, that the building was commissioned by the janitors of the city of Chicago, the janitors union of the city of Chicago, as a way to invest their pension uh, funds um, in, a, in a future development, with the idea that such a large complex, such as Marina City, uh, would provide return on their investment uh, by the sheer fact of them investing their funds, but also that a complex like this would employ unionized janitors, which uh, could not be employed, for example, in suburban communities, which typically didn't employ uh, unionized uh, janitors like they were employed in, in central business districts. So um, William McFetridge, who was at the time the, the the president of the janitors' union, really had a particular idea of investing in the city as a way to really gain something for uh, his membership, for his janitors who can actually then work in the complex, and potentially because of the size of the of the units that were fairly affordable, uh, could also live there and um, uh, be a part of a of a, of a, of a, of a larger investment in the uh, in the city of Chicago itself. Uh, needless to say, this whole story was very appealing to the politicians uh, of that time, in particular to Mayor. Daily, uh, Richard J. Daly, who saw this kind of investment as a potential way to really reverse uh, the exodus to the suburbs that was taking place at that time to start to sort of regain some of the urban population and also to try to find a way to reinvest uh, in, 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 in Chicago city center other than in something other than um, other than uh, than speculative uh, office space or something like that. So in that regard, uh, the building was interesting or the complex was interesting because it was both uh, connected socially to the fabric of the city and trying to do something socially, but also uh, at the same time created a visually very unique experience that at that point did not exist in the city and it's still uh, even today rather uh, rather unique. So what kind of apartment unit would somebody be getting if they made the choice to live here instead of moving to that suburban house? Can you describe the actual sure. Uh, unit? Sure. Uh, the units uh, came in three different sizes. Uh, one could get a, a studio unit, which is about uh, 600 square feet, or a one-bedroom unit, or a two-bedroom unit, which is about 1,200 square feet. So the apartments were envisioned to be fairly compact. Most of them were actually studios. Uh, but the idea was that even though the complex was in the city center, one could walk to work, one could walk to cultural amenities, there was enough parking spaces for all the units uh, in the apartments, so that if people desired to, uh, they could still own a car like people in suburban communities could do. Um, in addition to that, there was a very progressive idea that people who live in the complex could actually also own a boat, because the complex is uh, situated on the bank of Chicago River, very close to where it gets to Lake Michigan, so it has a marina at the lower level, which actually gives the name to the entire complex. So the idea was that uh, as janitors and other tenants lived in the complex, they could enjoy the benefits of um, uh, middle-class urban living that you know includes a car, but potentially also a boat, um, but also gain the benefits from being in the city and, and moving around uh, as pedestrians. Um, the complex uh, was designed entirely by the Gold, by Goldberg's office, which means they provided us, obviously, blueprints for the building, but also the interior of the apartments was also designed by the office, and he collaborated with interior architects at that time in the city of Chicago to also uh, provide some prototypes for, for how the units could be furnished. Uh, they all they, The office designed color schemes for kitchens and bathrooms uh, as a true example of a total modern design, what many modern architects desired, which is that the building would be designed inside out uh, in a particular uh, modern style. This went as far to uh, include examples of modern art, like Victor Lazzarelli, what I mentioned, but also uh, examples of modern landscape architecture, because Alfred Caldwell, noted landscape architect in the city of Chicago, who designed the campus uh, landscape plan for IIT for Mies van der Rohe, uh, designed a small garden um, as a part of the entire uh, Marina City complex. So did the janitors' union get what they had hoped for? Was this uh, a complex that was very appealing, and did some of them get to live there, and did their pension fund grow? Uh, it's a really good question, and it's a question that actually speaks to the ebbs and flows of not only architecture, but also, I would say, American economy in general. Uh, as the complex neared its completion, there was a major 
crisis and a power struggle at the janitorial union presidential level, so to speak, which resulted uh, in janitors actually pulling out of the Marina City complex. Uh, and then eventually the complex was transferred to another owner. And then by 1970s, it was actually converted, late 1970s, it was converted to uh, condominiums. So in many ways, the, um, the social uh, vision of this being an investment or return on a pension investment for janitors uh, was rather fragile. Um, we looked at the information about the, the sort of composition of tenants in the 1960s when the built complex was open and um, the income of the tenants, the average income of the tenants still fell in the kind of middle class level of American society a little bit sort of higher than what the, uh, what the clients and investors originally had hoped for to as, an, as, a, as a mixed-use affordable complex. Uh, but what is interesting, what sustained about Marina City was that uh, desire that one can live in a city beautifully uh, and comfortably, um, which sustained all various transitions in its economic structure, in its ownership, in its management, um, that throughout a period of about 40 years now, 50 years, the complex was seen as an uh, as a desirable place, an interesting place to live. In particular, again, starting from late 1990s, when the idea of urban living uh, made sort of a major comeback uh, in the comeback in this country. But the economic story was fairly uh, troublesome and fairly different. Speaking again to the to the fact how fragile also architecture is uh, to these uh, external factors. Uh, some of the banks that um, financed uh, the, the mortgages from the city complex also uh, went bankrupt, uh, including the National Illinois Bank in early 1980s, which at that time was the largest crash uh, on the, in, the, in the American sort of banking sector until the more, more recent uh, economic crisis. Uh, and Interestingly enough, it was the National Illinois that held the mortgage on the Marina City complex. So that gives you an idea how quickly and how sharply the ownerships and the economic um, uh, context of the complex changed. Sometimes what had happened also as these transitions occurred, uh, there were occasional issues with maintenance and upkeeping of the complex. And oftentimes Goldberg as an architect struggled uh, to maintain his original vision through numerous uh, renovations and additions of the complex. One such example that's really interesting is that uh, one of the major uh, features of the public plaza of Marina City was a big uh, sunken ice skating rink, which was uh, open to the public. Uh, it was a major aspect of the complex because obviously uh, being in Chicago and the city itself being a fairly windy, cold city, the ice skating rink could be used for much of the year. And uh, Goldberg really envisioned this place as a part not, not only of the complex, but of the entire neighborhood. Then um, the images of the ice skating rink show really beautiful um, beautiful snapshots of you know being in the city skating but being surrounding surrounded by the glittering lights of uh, buildings lined up along Wecker Drive and Chicago River but uh, again as um, sometimes Marina City changed ownerships and struggled to sort of raise uh, money for maintenance um, that skating rink was gone and actually it was leased to a steakhouse that is uh, there even today which was designed with a, a siding and different types of sort of classical or traditional elements which now sits in the middle of this uh, rather urban complex so uh, this story about um, um, about the, the, the skating rink as a public space was compromised but also as a kind of modern space it was compromised it's probably tell about how vulnerable sometimes architecture is to these external uh, economic factors. Speaking of that, Goldberg was very attentive to economy, and I think that uh, that was one of the interesting things about him as an architect. It was uh, not only that the, the unions wanted a return on their pension investment, but Goldberg also wanted to provide them uh, with an affordable investment. Uh, he was a part of financial discussions from the very beginning and at one point where there was a major crisis about whether or not the banks are going to provide mortgage insurance for the uh, for the complex he actually calculated himself how much um, uh, each individual rent per apartment would need to be raised uh, to close the financial structure. And it turned out they only needed 50 cents more per unit. And Goldberg actually wrote to the client and said, well, listen, if you raise this for 50 cents, you will be able to, to, to close this deal and make this building uh, a reality, which speaks to his sort of savvy understanding of structures, not only as sort of built matter, but also as, uh, as economical phenomena. You know, the, the story about the ice skating rink makes me think of the new rink that's part of the Millennium Park 
mm-hmm. uh, reconstruction. So it's almost like the city needed its skating rink and it can't be at Marina City anymore, but it can be down by the park. Sure. sure. It's a really interesting analogy, which is again another interesting story, the whole story about the Millennium Park and how it emerged you know, about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and again, the struggle to maintain that as a public space. It's a rather interesting one. I yeah. agree. So let's talk now about how you and Katarina wrote this book um, as a collaboration that involved, you know, 10 years of work and a lot of archival research. Uh, you guys were living in different places at the time, although you're, you're longtime collaborators. And can you just talk a little bit about how you start to research a building like or a complex like Marina City? Because I think from a methodological perspective, it's a really interesting choice not to write about Goldberg's career, not to write mm-hmm. about Chicago itself, but to choose just this one complex. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you start and, and where did, what did you guys do? Uh, well, we started in the archives. Uh, after um, uh, Goldberg died, uh, the, most of the um, archive from his firm and from the family was transferred to the uh, Art Institute of Chicago. And we really did most of our work in the archive, uh, going through documents, through drawings, through newspaper clippings, uh, really uncovering the story. And um, we started the work while we actually, both of us, by, by, while both of us lived in Chicago, but then eventually we moved to different locations. But we would make frequent trips and meet up in Chicago for very long archival sessions at the at the Art Institute, which was a major aspect of our work. Uh, what we quickly discovered that, you know, that archive provided only one angle of Goldberg's work. The other angle was obviously the labor union and, and how they participated in, in, the, in the realization of this complex. And uh, those archives of the labor unions, for example, were mostly at the uh, Wayne State University in Detroit. So we spent some time there as well, uh, as well as at Harvard archives, where some of the work uh, from the Bauhaus, the late Bauhaus, was transferred, including some of the Goldberg's uh, student work. Uh, being faced with this kind of tremendously complex story and complex um, um, plethora of materials, really, as I said, it ranged from drawings to newspaper magazines to uh, um, contracts and documents. Uh, we actually decided to really work on it mostly as a uh, as a historical narrative, historical narrative, and to really try uh, to tell the story uh, as clearly as possible. To go slowly through different aspects of the building, to go slowly through um, uh, how the, for example, the deal, the financial deal, was broken on the complex. To really then explain how then that deal was made a reality for different types of structural innovations that Goldberg undertook uh, on the uh, construction site. And then to also finally cover the economy of images with which, with which Marina City was, uh, was uh, advertised to the general public. Um, and that, that's where we sort of decided that as historians, uh, we need to step back a little bit and, and let this story emerge, uh, I should say, more naturally by sort of telling this historical narrative and doing a number of uh, archival visits, but also oral histories, and then breaking down this story uh, in different um, different aspects of the building. Uh, along the way, we've presented conference papers, we've exchanged numerous emails, we became very good about uh, editing each other's uh, drafts and writings and exchanging notes fairly quickly. It's a very uh, interesting process, I would say, something that's not very common in architectural historiography because oftentimes it's uh, constructed as a kind of a uh, individual undertaking for obvious reasons. But uh, we actually found it quite effective and quite rewarding because we were able to uh, maintain a conversation about our, our own work throughout our process. Uh, there was always someone to talk to about uh, whatever we were writing uh, at any given time, and that's what makes our work much uh, more pleasurable and interesting for us. Yeah, and I think if you find the right partner, then that's a really productive way it to is. work. And I think uh, a lot of us don't take the time to look for that partner, but it is definitely sure. something to think about, that this back and forth can really um, help to bring out the argument and can clarify things mm-hmm. as you're going. So why don't you say a little bit about how the book is structured relative to this uh, plethora of archival material, because mm-hmm. I found the book to be especially um, interesting from a methodological perspective, 
in the sense that the chapters are very clearly delineated and they're delineated along thematic lines, not chronological or some of the other more typical ways to do it. But um, you really do a kind of 360 around mm -hmm. the complex, um, both mm -hmm. physically and, and conceptually. So if you could say a little bit about how you made your choices and if it was a difficult uh, choice, you know, did you struggle with that part of the book? Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Uh, and um, it was certainly a difficult choice and something that we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how to structure uh, this uh, this whole story. Initially, I think when we started to write about the complex, uh, I would say we wrote more in a chronological perspective as the complex evolved. But then we found it really difficult to structure our argument around that uh, linear historical narrative uh, because the questions of money were so powerful that you had to kind of group them in a certain um, um, section of the book to really explain the whole story. You can't go keep going in and out of the just because of the, the chronology. So uh, it took us a long time. It took us a few years, actually, to come up with the, with the structure of the book that we were really happy about. And we decided to start with a very brief overview of Goldberg's uh, car career uh, prior to Marina City, just to, so that the reader can get a sense of his background in Europe, his background in Chicago, and his um, uh, the beginning of his practice uh, in 1930s to 1950s. Then we decided to walk people through Marina City Complex, because what we've discovered in our discussions with the general uh, public, uh, more or less, is that people oftentimes reduce Marina City to these two uh, circular towers. And the complex actually has these five different components, uh, which are probably as big and probably as, as significant, including the office building, the mixed-use space, the public plaza, the theater, and so on. So we've decided to spend some time really unpacking the complex and telling really uh, the story about it as a mixed-use development, which is oftentimes forgotten uh, in sort of in the face of its very powerful image. Which is again significant because it is the first major mixed-use development in an American downtown um, of its time, and it was a model for a long time that was then later, in particular in the 1990s, replicated uh, in Chicago uh, and around the country, which helped revitalize many of the downtown areas. Um, then uh, we decided that we will group our discussion or our argument about the city in three different uh, sections. Uh, one is about to talk about structures, because Goldberg was uh, a maker and someone who experimented constantly with uh, materials, with prototypes. Uh, he was very involved in the construction site. There was always someone from his office on uh, uh, the Marina City construction site who was involved directly with, the, uh, uh, with contractors. Um, he was very interested in how the buildings could be prefabricated and produced, but also oftentimes they improvised on the construction site um, in a, in, a, in a methodology what we call the uh, where the hand meets the machine again where there is this sort of softer version of modernism where this kind of hyper modern industrial building meets uh, particular inventions on site and oftentimes improvisations the second section deals with a deal with the financial deal uh, behind the building because we thought that as much uh, as uh, um, its material was unique, it was also the story about its finances that was rather unique. And there we touch upon uh, not only the financial deal between the, the, the banks and the, and the janitors' union, but also we speak about the general economic context of the 1950s and 60s, the, the Cold War, the sort of the kind of race that was, you know, a race not only in space and with armaments, but also a race to provide uh, middle-class commodities, uh, both in Soviet Union and in the United States, or, you know, at that time in particular, Soviet Union perhaps naively believed that they can compete with the kind of uh, uh, amenities that uh, the United States was providing to its uh, to its um, middle class. Incidentally, the announcement about Marina City. Uh, construction was made in Chicago sometimes on the same day that Khrushchev uh, arrived in his iconic visit to the United States where he went to uh, Iowa and visited uh, some of the home economics uh, school at Iowa schools at Iowa State University. So we talk about that as a beginning of Marina City and then we talk about um, different types of financial um, uh, financial structures that actually helped make it a reality uh, that involved banks, that involved Goldberg going to the Federal Housing Authority 
authority and arguing that the, uh, these apartments should be, uh, that the mortgages on these apartments should be insured, which at that time was a rare thing, actually did not happen because they were not considered single family houses like suburban units were considered. So he argued that single people, people without children should be actually considered families and that these units should be insured or the mortgage rather should be insured so that the financial deal could actually be closed. But then we come to the third part of our book, which uh, talks about the image, which is our sort of brief name for the uh, economy of images and advertisement in which Goldberg was very heavily involved uh, as an architect. So as much as concrete and money was a currency in the making of Marina City, so, so was the imagery that came with it. Uh, Goldberg's office designed brochure, they were a, a fixture and a feature at the groundbreaking ceremony, they designed full-scale mock-ups that were built at the janitor's union's headquarters to convince the janitors to actually live there uh, and to sort of visualize these striking effects of living on the 60th floor uh, of a downtown tower surrounded by these beautiful uh, city lights as a way to promote urban living is something really special uh, and unique. Uh, so our arguments revolve around those three, I would say, main chapter, the chapter on money, the chapter on structure, and the chapter on on images. And uh, we conclude the book by, by an argument saying that um, Goldberg, as an architect, understood the economy of building or buildings. It was somehow flowing between, between these three different areas. And because he was so versatile uh, in those uh, those three, uh, those three areas. He actually helped significantly to make his own design uh, a reality, and this is why the sort of initial design of Marina City and its construction really closely followed uh, Goldberg's initial uh, design proposal, regardless of its fairly unusual um, form and format. But because he was able to um, experiment with structure, because he was able to experiment with finances and identify new funding flows for the building, because he was able to experiment with images, uh, he eventually made this building uh, a reality, but also, and I would say in particular because of the images, he made it uh, a local and international icon. And this is where we realized in the sort of concluding parts of our book that the fact that we knew about the building as far away as Serbia or Czech Republic or some people in Japan or Australia was not a coincidence. It was a, it was a result of a sort of carefully orchestrated marketing blitz uh, that Goldberg undertook. Uh, that included newspaper, I'm sorry, newspaper clippings or newspaper announcements, um, uh, different types of uh, advertisements, uh, and that this image of Marina City was not purely just coincidental, that it was a result of this uh, major media coverage of the complex with which Goldberg was uh, intimately linked, in particular in the early days uh, of Marina City's uh, construction and promotion in the 1960s. After that, the complex took off its own life in images uh, around the world. Uh, in the 1970s, it was the, the most popular postcard uh, identified by the, the, the postcard vendors in the city of Chicago. Then it became a feature in numerous movies, later on in LP and CD covers. It even made it to the Jetsons. Um, so in a sense, it became uh, a particular icon of a, of a new form of urban living that was somewhat futuristic, but almost always um, urban and, uh, and visually fascinating. You know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking back to Goldberg in Germany in the early 1930s and wondering if he picked up some of this uh, media savvy from his mm -hmm. Bauhaus colleagues because, mm -hmm. you know, we all are, are, those of us interested in modernism are quite familiar with all of the Bauhaus images and, and the use of the image as a way of propagating architectural ideas. So do you see this also as part of that legacy? Absolutely, and I think that's one of the major uh, lessons. I think they, he had probably many lessons from the Bauhaus, but uh, it was a lesson that was both uh, educational or pedagogical that he picked up in working with people like Albers, for example, in particular, and the influence of modern art or typography on, on, on design in general, but also even in a more uh, modest terms. Uh, he, for example, designed um, the invitation for the last Bauhaus festival in the February of 1933, uh, in which, interestingly enough, he featured a very simple circular design for a circular invitation, a circular card, uh, inviting people to the last Bauhaus festival 
festival just uh, weeks basically before the the school was closed. So in a sense, the lesson was both coming through his intersection with these major teachers at the Bauhaus, but also in his own embracing of graphic design, typography, and visual media as a as a uh, as a powerful tool tool of contemporary societies. And he he definitely understood what photographs well because I think. The building is extraordinary for its photographability. Absolutely. And one of the reasons that he was able to do that is that very early on in the 1930s, he recognized uh, uh, very particular talents of the Hedrick Blessing photography firm uh, in Chicago, who at that time were a very young firm, um, um, but later on became very prominent. So some of our most iconic images of uh, Miss Vanderbilt's building in Chicago, for example, are taken by the, the Hedrick Blessing firm, which is still active. But uh, Goldberg really deployed uh, employed their talents as early as 1930s for some of his early uh, prototypes. And then throughout the Marina City design and uh, construction and development, uh, the Hedrick Blessing staff was always there to document every step. And one of the things that they did early on was to always document a particular aspect of the complex by day and by night and to highlight this sort of spectacular effect of the building being illuminated by electric lights as a kind of a futuristic device, if you wish, which again had its own economic background because the building was actually an all-electric building with all-electric utilities. So the idea was that electric energy was seen as uh, affordable, as clean, as basically the energy source of the future, which is why some of these iconic images of Marina City by night, well illuminated by uh, light, sort of uh, are not only visually striking, but they also have a particular um, economical underpinning, so to speak. And uh, other photographers photographed the complex quite regularly, including Richard Nickel, who was very noted for his uh, architectural photography work in Chicago, who uh, for a number of months um, uh, featured or, or published a photograph of the construction progress of Marina City on the contents page of the Inland Architect, which is a very prominent and influential architectural journal of its time, sort of building up this excitement about how this futuristic and interesting complex is rising up uh, on Chicago's skyline. So this use of photography, again, uh, is, was not coincidental. It was something that went in parallel uh, with the construction of Marina City, with its promotion that evolved at the same time as the blueprints for the building evolved in the Marina City, in the in Goldberg office. So this futuristic ideas that uh, Goldberg had, they were deployed in other projects as well. And I, I know myself, I've seen some of the later apartment buildings um, on the other side of the river in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, what happened after Marina City. And I think in general, we can say Marina City stands out as the more elegant of the projects mm-hmm. that use this kind of organic shape. But maybe you have something more to say about that. Um, uh, sure. There's, there's, there are other projects, in particular in Chicago, that um, that occur after Marina City. Uh, some of them um, are housing complexes or mixed-use complexes in a similar vein. Uh, one of them is the River City complex, which uh, meanders along the south branch of the Chicago River, which, uh, unlike Marina City, was not as successful in developing a very active and lively uh, public space on the base level, in part because also when it was constructed, it was further away from the main um, the, the city center. Uh, it was fairly, I, would, I should say, more isolated than the location uh, of Marina City. But both areas, the area of Marina City and the area of River City, eventually saw a major growth and expansion of its uh, urban population. Uh, another interesting project that I would like to mention is the Raymond Hilliard homes, which um, are on the south side of Chicago, just south south of the, of the loop, which, again, are very interesting because they feature a prominent, uh, I would say, half-circular form, and they're made in concrete. And um, in many ways, it's an interesting story because it's, it's a public housing project uh, built for the city of Chicago um, that uh, actually uh, did fairly well, and even... It, 
is saw a major renovation a few years ago, and it's still there and doing uh, much better than some of the other, uh, or did much better than some of the other uh, developments within the Chicago Housing Authority, in part because Goldberg was also very involved, not only in the design of the complex, but also in the designing of the, the grounds around the complex, providing space for children to play, for uh, older people to socialize, to be outside. So uh, in many ways, it's one of the uh, uh, success stories of the Chicago Housing Authority and its involvement with public housing. And then, of course, we have the hospitals in Chicago and uh, and across across the country from uh, Alabama to uh, Washington State to Massachusetts um, um, that were significant because they feature different types of um, programmatic inventions about how patients should relate to nurses and to physicians. They are oftentimes recognizable by their unusually organic form or circular forms. Um, some of these hospitals, many of these hospitals are still in use. One of them, unfortunately, uh, the Prentice Hospital in the city of Chicago is under threat of demolition because uh, it's seen as a uh, less flexible, maybe than some of the, um, the the newer hospital designs, despite despite the fact that many Chicagoans were actually born there and are quite sort of attached uh, to that particular structure. Um, so uh, some of these designs, as you can imagine, were quite uh, controversial because of their because of their design. Some of them are not, and some of them are just part of the kind of. Uh, aging process of the American uh, building stock, which is seen sometimes as, 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 uh, as something that has a life cycle that's maybe a shorter than it should be, uh, so as opposed to sort of uh, renovating them and making them sort of better and more appropriate for the different age. Sometimes they're seen as a commodity that could be replaced by by, by a new construction. And certainly Goldberg's buildings are sometimes uh, threatened by that, which in general is the, probably the next big preservation struggle, how to save some of these uh, modern landmarks. So I'll ask you a sort of uh, pointed question about that. In the case of the hospital in particular, which which uh, got a lot of media coverage recently, do you think it's important to save it? I mean, is there a kind of limitation uh, in this concrete prefabricated architecture? And you know from my own research that this is a question that I sort of deal with. And I, and I wonder if you fall on the side of its value as, as a monument or as a, um, a piece of history or if you would say that it might have lived out its life. Um, I I see it as a piece of history, but also as a piece of something that could be uh, transformed to different um, um, versions of adaptive reuse. For example, that it could be uh, used as a hospital, as a as a as a as a as a bedroom wing, or as some type of other aspects of hospital uh, program. But uh, I also see it as an important um, contributor to the city fabric and city history because what in particularly concerns me about, um, let's just use the example of Prentice Hospital, is that these buildings are becoming so expendable that they've been replaced now at an, at an increasingly uh, shorter cycle. And uh, even though they're just seen as something that, you know, that provides health to people in a very sort of pragmatic way, I think they need to be seen as structures that contribute to the greater life of the city. And as I said, many Chicago Chicagoans were born in the Prentice Women's Hospital, and they're sort of attached to that complex for uh, obvious reasons. So uh, for um, an institution of that size and that kind of magnitude, I think uh, there must be a way to sort of work through aspects of adaptive reuse and reconfiguration that can preserve the memory, that can preserve the history, but also continue its use as a, as a contemporary building. And we see that happening around the world uh, all the time. I think it's a little bit of a, of a, of a North American syndrome and sometimes I would say in other countries as well, but in particular in, in places like Chicago that uh, the buildings become obsolete and then the easiest thing to do is to replace them with something else. Unfortunately, it happens a lot um, um, where I live in St. Louis as well, that we've lost some very significant historical buildings, even from 19th century, uh, for uh, um, programs such as surface parking lots. Um, so I think we need to all recognize the value and that you know modernism is also part of our history and part of our memory, and I think it needs to be cherished as some of the buildings that maybe uh, are a few decades older than they are. So uh, as we're coming to the end of our time today, I'd like to hear a little bit about what you're working on now. Um, mm -hmm. I know you have a long-term project related to your <laughs> dissertation. Maybe you can talk to us about that. Just some mm -hmm. sense of how Goldberg is... Uh, has, has sent you in a new direction or the next direction? Um, 
one of the major strains, as I've sort of touched upon in the in our conversation in the in the book, was this issue of uh, visual imagery and media as something that uh, dominated the production of the Marina City complex, and that's something that I'm interested sort of in beyond the scope of this uh, particular project in the sort of architectural culture as it engages media and visual imagery to produce buildings, to produce cities, to make plans that have impact on uh, on our cities. And uh, my current project looks at the issues of architectural education more specifically and how uh, some of these um, uh, issues that we discussed in the book uh, could relate not only to the practice of architecture, like in the place of Goldberg, but also in the uh, training of architects and how this idea of uh, building uh, as, a, as, a, as a diverse um, conglomeration of of, uh, of different um, uh, aspects such as uh, imagery structures and so on how it's not only manifest how it not only manifests itself in, in, in an office but also how does it manifest itself in design studio and particularly in architectural education and I'm focusing uh, more precisely on the um, uh, work of uh, Alvin Boyarsky uh, who was a noted um, educator uh, both in North America and in particular in England uh, at the Architectural Association where through his work as, a, as an educator he was able to influence a whole number of um, even currently uh, prominent practicing architects around the world. And are you and Katerina working on any collaborative projects at the moment? Uh, we are always trying to collaborate uh, and and discuss our ideas, and I think right now we are still uh, in the process of really promoting the book and uh, really making this story from the Marina City book more accessible to the wider audiences, including through venues like this, through uh, interviews. Uh, and we work a lot on that through a system, through lectures, through, uh, as I said, interviews and other venues. Uh, but we definitely plan uh, to continue to collaborate, continue collaboration as historians, because uh, as I said at the very beginning, found it very uh, rewarding and I would also say very productive as historians to work in a team. Uh, we've discovered that we can cover more archival ground faster together than we can do it individually and then that we can also question our own work probably more um, uh, critically early on uh, when we work together and provide two different perspectives on a particular subject. So uh, yes, we definitely plan to continue working together on other projects as well. Well, I really appreciate you finding time to talk to us. Um, Igor is in London, so we had to uh, make some arrangements to get him when he's so busy. And uh, it's been great to talk to you. And I want to thank you guys really uh, for the great book and for the chance to chat today. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. Unfortunately, Katrina was not able to join us for this discussion, but uh, it was a lovely discussion. Thank you so much for your questions and for this opportunity to share our ideas with you. All right, have a good day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Igor Marjanovich, one of the authors of Marina City, Bertrand Goldberg's Urban Vision, written with Katerina Rudy Ray, published by Princeton Architectural Press in 2010. I'm Kimberly Zarekor, one of the hosts of New Books in Architecture. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great week.